atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government, hug the government, love the government, hug the government, love the government, hug the government. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm political scientist Michael Baranowski. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay. So, you know, I think we can just we can just get right to it. There were a bunch of things we didn't have time to get to. Not surprisingly, we spent a lot of time, especially on the, the Claudine Gay story, but the other things as well. So, which is weird. It's sort of we sort of fall into the Harvard trap as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you can't. You, yes. Frustrating to me, right? Because when you, I actually did this a while back. I looked at, or tried to find as many of the college affiliations of the journalists at, or the what do you call media personalities at, like Fox and MSNBC and New York Times and Wall Street Journal, and as you would expect, just just chock full of Ivy League. And I guess it maybe it's because. I'm not that person, right? I'm, I have no real ties with the sort of Eastern elite establishment that it, it rankles, you know, a little bit, right? You know, there are there are plenty of incredibly intelligent, impressive people who went to Baldwin Wallace University or the Ohio State University and that, and yet yet Harvard punches so much above it. Well, I guess maybe not above its economic weight, but anyway, that. Maybe that's just me being a bitter flyover country person. I don't know. Well, no, I, I think quite honestly, I do think there was an anti-East Coast elitism vein that kind of runs through what we do, right? I mean, again, just just because of our our Midwestern sort of, I don't know, I call it this, this they phrase Jerry Ford, Midwestern decency. There you <laughs> go. I, I like that. I'll go. Uh, yeah. The sense, the sensibility that that I that that you and I kind of just were were brought up in, and I, I think that's part of part of the perspective that that we bring. That maybe people, again, I'm certainly people on the West Coast, people on the East Coast, see things much differently. But yes, our, our good solid. I'm, what I'm saying is, I'm proud to represent. There you go, absolutely. Representing the two one six, absolutely, and the five one three in my case. But anyway, yeah. Well, let's let's get to some of those stories we weren't able to. And one is actually uh, fairly recent. Uh, it's raised some bipartisan concern. Nippon Steel, which is the largest steel maker in Japan, fourth largest in the world, recently agreed to acquire U.S. steel for $14.9 billion. And that was nearly double the $7.3 billion offered this summer by U.S. steelmaker Cleveland Cliffs. Now, the Biden administration has said that the planned purchase deserves serious scrutiny because of possible national security and supply chain concerns. And both U.S. Steel and the Ponds have said that they expect the Committee on Foreign Investment to review the pending sale, but they feel fairly confident that it will be approved. And I mentioned there's a fair amount of bipartisan opposition of Republican Senators J.D. Vance, Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio. As well as Democrats like Sherrod Brown, Joe Manchin, John Fetterman are have come out against it. But it looks like, at least at this point, that it, there probably won't be enough opposition to prevent the deal from going through. Now, if we take a look at 
former Trump administration trade officials who probably would play some role in a future Trump administration if he ends up winning in 2024. You have former Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. He was he argued in a Wall Street Journal editorial that opposition to the sales being driven by xenophobia and that there are no real national security or supply chain concerns. But on the other hand, you have former Trump U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, who I'd argue is even more influential or would be in a future Trump administration, coming out strongly against the acquisition, saying that, of course, there's a national security issue. Also against the sale, the United Steel workers, even though they came out against it, even though Nippon Steel promised to honor the steel workers' current agreement with U.S. Steel, and that's an agreement that requires any buyer to come to terms on a new labor agreement prior to an acquisition. So, Jay, this kind of this sale sort of or pending sale kind of cuts across certain ideological lines. What do you think? Should it be allowed to go through? What do you make of the opposition to it? And do you think it's going to end up happening? Well, no, I I, and this is maybe unfair. I'm taking sort of a, a middle position on this is, yes, anytime we're talking about big company that produces something that is vitally important to national security, I think. Caution is warranted, and you need to take a look at, at at that, right? Are there the potentials of of national security issues, you being able to produce enough steel if we need to, and, and supply chain issues? I, I think those are good conversations to have and important conversations to have. Um, I would certainly feel differently if it was a Chinese company. Yeah, great point. Buying U.S. steel, right? I mean, obviously, that's something entirely different. Um uh, or, you know, to go back a couple of years, a, 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 a Russian company buying all our uranium. But um, the, the, this uh, otherwise, I think I think presumptively, right, should should go through. And this is so I'm not I'm not saying you don't take a look. I'm not saying you don't do the due diligence and that the questions raised aren't important. Um, but I think at the end of the day, um, uh, it it. You know, we ought not to we ought not to be xenophobic in terms of if you, know, you can look at this a couple different ways. One is, well, it's the Japanese buying up our stuff. The other is our company being open, our company, our country being open for investment. Um, so, yeah, and that was the case that and, Ross and, made. And and I yeah. think you're right that this, this as you expect, of, I'm, I'm more a Wilbur Ross yeah. than I am a Robert Lighthizer kind of guy. But but when you look at just the basic facts of the industry, right? I mean, U.S. Steel has this sort of uh, name, right, that people are very familiar with, but it's not even the largest U.S. Steel manufacturer. That's Nucor, and, and they produce significantly more steel than U.S. Steel. And not only that, but uh, the American steel industry is only operating at around 75% of capacity, and the idle capacity in the steel industry is greater than U.S. Steel's total output which is an important thing to keep in mind. So even if, you know, I don't know, Nippon Steel just goes nuts and says, we are not allowing any Nippon Steel made to be sold. We have plenty of excess capacity right. in there. And which would be, which would be a, a weird, a weird thing to do yeah, exactly. to a steel company. <laughs> exactly. And so, but, but I think this is, you know, a lot of people don't, don't go there. They just think, oh my God, Japan is buying up. This, these foreigners are buying up our steel. And that's why I have, and I know you share concerns, like when Donald Trump basically put a 75, or sorry, 25% tariff on nearly all imported steel, that's just a, 
That's just a, a nutty thing to right. do. That's that's rank protectionism. That's and, yeah, and that doesn't that doesn't help. I I think you can make a really good argument that that sort of protectionism that U.S. Steel and other American steel companies have been beneficiaries of for generations now has in part been part of the reason why they in many instances are not nearly as technologically advanced because they were protected from they didn't have to be that good and that advanced and one of the big problems with u.s steel for a long time has been that its technology isn't anywhere near state of the art because and that's the whole argument for allowing foreign investment in competition is that we want competition to force american companies to produce the best products in the world and not to just produce subpar, you know, expensive products that we have to buy because they're American. Yeah. So let me, Mike, this, this is a great segue into our, our uh, light blue collar Midwest past. But as, as some listeners know, I mean, I, I, I know a little bit about steel and a little bit about Japan having grown up in Youngstown, Ohio, which was at one point the steel capital of, of the country. Um, uh, particularly during the the fifties, early sixties, and you mentioned protectionism. There was also the U.S. had sort of a, a natural protectionism um, that took place during those post-war decades. In that most of of European and Japanese production had had been wiped out by the war. Um, we were sort of the only game in town, and there was a whole lot of steel that needed to be made as as a post-war recovery, as the automobile boom as you know uh, spreading out in suburbanization and all these things right that happened in the 50s and through the 60s and and i think you're exactly right that there was a complacency that sort of set in and then you got to the mid 70s and all of a sudden the europeans had had built new new plants and again many in folks in places like youngstown ohio said yeah and they built it with our our aid which is which is not untrue, and same with the Japanese, right? We helped build their capacity up better than you know newer than what we had, but but you had U.S. companies that just could not compete or could not compete in making the same margins that they did before. And I also, you and I were old enough to live through what was sort of the the Japanic, we'll call it, of the the 1980s, right? There was the the fear that the Japanese were going to economically displace America. They were buying up lots of real estate. They bought Rockefeller Center, all this, this stuff that, you know, they, that somehow now it's, well, the, you know, Japanese will own everything. Um, um, Nakatomi Plaza, right? I mean, this is, there's those, those are all, 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 all uh, elements, right? Of, of that, that eighties Japan thing. And of course, it it didn't really come to pass because the the Japanese economy subsequently sputtered uh, in the nineties and and in the early two thousands. But I I can very much you know remember being told in sixth grade, well, look, you guys you guys all need to learn Japanese because you know that's who you're going to be working for. And previous um, to that, it was it was the Saudi Arabians, right? And in the seventies, that concerned that they were going to buy up everything with their petrodollars, that kind of thing. And so, so apparently, I mean, they've succeeded now. Good. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, I'm I'm I look at this is is it's a little it's kind of nostalgic, <laughs> uh, but I don't see this this tremendous concern uh, with having the Japanese buy a a company. Again, because of the commodity that's being made, I think there's naturally a national security interest and it ought to be looked at carefully. But yeah, I, I might, and you, I can, 
let, let's tell a, a story. My congressman, um, Jim Traffigant, back in the 80s, oh, God. would have fundraisers <laughs> where for for $25, you could take a sledgehammer to a Toyota. This is this is literally what would happen, right? His fundraisers. So again, it's it's sort of funny people talking now about Trump being uh, xenophobic and so forth. We literally had Democratic congressmen hosting, you know, these <laughs> Japanese car bashing things where you would literally smash up Japanese cars. There were there were signs um, uh, as you got close to the BMV where you took your driver's test in in Youngstown, Ohio that all said Japanese cars steal American jobs. And if you took your driver's test in a Japanese car, you failed, period. I mean, on the second or third time, you might get. But I know of absolutely no one who ever took their test in a Japanese car and passed the first time, ever. And again, again, these the signs are all around the state facility where you're going to take your driver's test. I, I remember um, growing up in Cleveland. Uh, I'm not suggesting that the signs were put there by the state. The sure. signs were put there by unions, but, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 uh, I think this is important because it's not beyond the realm of possibility that this sale is delayed, the approval is delayed long enough, depending on how the opposition goes. And if it gets delayed into 2025 and Trump is reelected, I think if this has not been entirely approved, before Donald Trump would start a second term, that almost certainly would be rejected because the committee that the committee that that evaluates on foreign investment, it's basically all top cabinet officials. And I have a hard time believing that Donald Trump would allow this sale to go through. And so this is a big deal because this also, I should point out, it's a good thing because it allows that investment into U.S. well, the former U.S. steel that will actually allow it to innovate and bring up its production standards and actually should create jobs and make steel made in this country better and more efficient. And that's a that's win win. And, and this goes to my, my point, too. And I, I actually I made these arguments to my sixth grade teacher back in the day who did was unsympathetic towards them, um, who, who actually won because we, we did have a Japanese car, asked, asked me how I felt about putting other kids' parents out of work. But again, this this is what I'm this is what I'm trying to say. What you know, if you're, people are saying, "Oh my God, xenophobia, Japan." You know, no, this I lived it. Um, today, one of the largest employers in in Ohio, in Central Ohio, is Honda of America, right? Japanese companies invested, built plants in America, and they're hiring Americans and they're making good money, putting out good cars. Um. So yeah, I am I am an old school Adam Smith kind of guy on this. And, and if anybody goes back and you know, you know, people say Adam Smith sort of invented capitalism and all that, but if you read a wealth of nations, most mostly what it's about is is free trade and sort of the idea that let the let the place, person, company, nation that can do something most efficiently do it because that's that's going to be uh the best for all around. Yeah. So but of course, it was easier for the U.S. to be free trade when we didn't have any significant competition. When you didn't have any competitors, exactly. yeah, <laughs> exactly. So yeah. All right, let's move on to. Well, I guess it's not exactly trade related, but it's certainly economic related in some way. This again is from a couple of weeks ago. The New York Times ended 2023 by filing a federal lawsuit against OpenAI and Microsoft, which has a 
pretty big stake in OpenAI, claiming that the two firms committed have committed copyright infringement on a grand scale, right? They say that OpenAI's LLM was built by copying and using millions of New York Times articles. And not only that, but that the models builders gave particular emphasis to Times content, and they now use that content. That's what troubles me. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you'd be worried about that, sure. But 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 basically, the Times said, we made this massive investment in journalism, built these journalistic products, and now OpenAI trained its model on this, and now it's spitting out these, in many cases, almost verbatim excerpts, detailed summaries. They're significantly, they're significantly longer, they're more detailed than anything that you get from a traditional search engine, and that they said they've tried to reach some sort of a negotiated agreement with OpenAI for the use of their content. They haven't been able to do so. Now, on their part, OpenAI and Microsoft say, hey, we're within our fair right, fair use rights because our product is transformative in nature, meaning that it creates something new. Right. That, you're not just copying something, you're making something new. Exactly. So they, they had, now that's not, that is not a flat out defense, but if you can prove that your work is transformative, that makes it more likely that your work will be seen as be ruled as being within fair use standards, but it's not the only standard. I want to point that out now, but the time says it's not even transformative because basically the product that results is in fact a substitute for those copyright articles and that it directly competes with and mimics. But Claudine, Claudine Gay cutting and pasting. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> there you go. Now, uh, what the Times says in their lawsuit is that they're entitled to billions of dollars in statutory and actual damages. They want uh, OpenAI and Microsoft to be enjoined from using their material and that any LLMs that have used their material should be destroyed, in the words of the lawsuit. Now, kind of more broadly, the publishing world understandably is concerned with the, the threat from these LLMs. And there are some actually, like the Times, Getty Images as well, have pursued litigation. But there are others that have taken a different course. For instance, the Associated Press reached a licensing agreement not too long ago with uh, OpenAI. Now, we don't know about the terms. This was uh, These weren't publicly disclosed, but we do know that it includes, we're told it includes, includes what's called a most favored nation clause. Or that's what it's called sometimes, which means that the AP has a right to reset the terms of the agreement if any other company gets a better deal than AP for the use of their content. So we see some, you know, some differences in approach here. And I guess I want to get your take on that, but specifically on this lawsuit, I wonder what kind of a legal case you think uh, the New York Times might have. And uh, you know, then we can get into maybe the more general threat to journalism uh, posed by these LLMs. What do you think? Wait, before you go, I've got some news for you. While that is it for the free preview of this Supporters Midweek episode, there is a lot more, and you can hear it all every week by becoming a supporter. Now, normally, that means $5 a month or more, but for the rest of January, we're cutting that in half, just $2.50 a month for not just the full midweek episode, but ad-free versions of everything we release and access to our always lively, often provocative and, you know, occasionally even kind of wise Politics Guys Discord group. 
and you will lock in that access at $250 a month for the entire year of 2024 with everything that's going to be going on. I think it's an awesome deal. But if $250 a month is just too much, how about free? That's right. If you are not in a position to financially support the podcast, but you would like to get the full midweek episode, just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will make sure that every week you get a link to that full midweek supporters episode. To check it out, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can just check it out in the show notes. I always have the link there or at politicsguys.com slash support. And before I go, as always, a, a special thank you to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Brian Beasley, and Don Oglesby.